to the Harvard on China podcast at the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies. 欢迎来到费正清中国研究中心的哈佛论中国播客。The Fairbank Center is a world-leading center on China at Harvard University. Today's guest on the Harvard on China podcast is Gail Hershatter, distinguished professor of history at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Professor Hershatter's research spans the history of China's long 20th century. In particular, she re-examines the immense societal changes of the 1950s through oral histories of rural women, while mass campaigns for collectivization, anti-intellectualism, and ideological purity raged in China's coastal cities. Did these rural women experience the same messages as their urban counterparts? I'm James Evans at the Fairbank Center, and I asked Professor Hershatter about how subjective experiences of history affect our understanding of the Maoist era. I'm Gail Hershatter. I am distinguished professor of history at the University of California, Santa Cruz. I came to the Fairbank Center as a postdoctoral fellow in 1986, 1987. I was teaching at Williams College at that time, and I remained an associate in research at the Fairbank Center until I moved out to California in 1991 to take up my current post at UC Santa Cruz. So yesterday in your、uh, talk, you described the story of Chiao Cao. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about her story for our podcast listeners. Chiao Cao is a village head in Shanxi Province, and I interviewed her at the end of 2013. She had been elected village head after a career as a entrepreneur. In fact, she still owns a. Very elaborate window treatment store, although she's not running it now because she's、uh, the village head. She ran for village head as part of a campaign on the part of the Women's Federation to increase the number of women that were active in local village government, and she has supervised many rural development projects. At the time I talked to her, she'd been village head for nine years. But the most unusual thing she did was. When villagers lost a lot of their land because it was sold、uh, for urban development for the expanding county seat, she persuaded them to invest many of the proceeds collectively. Some of it in business enterprises such as trucking bays and rental units, and some of it in collective social welfare such as childcare and a senior living center.、Uh, In which local residents enjoy preferred rates. She also helped to start a women's handicraft co-op. Chilsa was the interviews with her were sort of part of this broader process of interviewing women throughout that region, specifically women who had had experiences of collectivization. Era. How does Chilsa's story tie in with research on the collectivization era? Well, the interview with Chilsa came some years after I'd finished.、Uh, Ten-year interviewing project with a Chinese co-researcher, Gao Xiaoxian,、uh, about the experiences of women in the collective era in rural Shanxi, and there was a way in which that interview was an afterthought because the book was done and out, and it was not focusing on women of Chiaozhou's generation. But it got me to thinking about what was the legacy of. The events that I spent ten years interviewing about—that is, collectivization of agriculture in China and the mobilization of women to come out and be more active in public spaces. So I started thinking about the conditions of emergence of somebody like Chiao Cao. Yeah, and you talk a lot about、um, 
Well, at the beginning of your talk, you spoke about generational transmission and this concern that sort of the history would be lost. Um, is that something that informed your decision to interview people like yourself? I'm very interested in generational transmission. What does one generation learn and remember and find important about what has happened previously? In the case of rural China, it's an interesting question, partly because most of the institutional arrangements that characterized the 50s, 60s, 70s in rural China have been very consciously dismantled. Land is no longer collectivized. Most young people are not in the countryside. They've gone off to find work in the cities and so forth. So I was interested in what the daughters and granddaughters, if not directly, then in terms of cohort, of the women that I had interviewed um, earlier, might understand and remember and how they might make sense out of the experiences of the people who had come before them in a situation in which almost nothing was the same. And it turns out that one of the things that they now take for granted that is actually a fairly recent historical phenomenon, is the movement of women through public space, both for work purposes and to some degree in terms of political participation and local leadership, but also with respect to how women conduct themselves socially, what they think it's appropriate to say in public, how they comport themselves in public, whether they think they have a right to be there. And for someone like Chiozza, who is a very talented leader, and who's clearly done a lot of local politicking and mobilization herself. She is in some ways very much the inheritor of a revolution that's not talked about publicly at all anymore. I mean, one of the um, sort of anecdotes that you unpacked in your talk um, was this idea that women moving from within the courtyard to a public space was very much part of the revolution. Is that a simplistic explanation of? the changing role of women? It's a formulation that the revolution had about itself, that women's liberation consisted in making it possible for women to move about in public. Of course, poor women had always gone out to the fields to work, and they had often been in vulnerable positions out on the road as refugees, fleeing from bandits, and uh, otherwise coping with the environment that was absolutely standard in, in this part of Shanxi, uh, central and south Shanxi, before 1949. So when they say the revolution made it possible for me to go out and work, in many cases that's not literally the case. They were out and working when they were poor and when they were children, when they were adolescents, some of them when they were young wives and widows. Before 1949, what they're really saying is, it is now okay for women to be in public space. It's not dangerous, it's not stigmatized, it's not a sign that your family is poor or that they are unable to protect you. So the content of women's work changed quite a bit after the revolution, but what changed even more is the valence attached to it. It's now, it became a valorized category instead of a stigmatized one to be out in public performing certain kinds of labor and also participating politically. And is that part of the um, sort of about specific gendered experiences of women versus men from this period? Is that very much part of, of that vein? Yes. I don't think that transformation of the spatial organization of labor was such a big feature for men, even though they went from household labor to collective labor, even though many of them had often left the village to 
seek work or avoid conscription before 1949, and now they were mainly on the land all the time. Still, they were doing some of the things men had always done, and women were starting to do things that women had not done on such a regular basis before, and certainly not in a collective group of other young women their own age. How has your research on this period of history informed, if any, sort of change in opinion between the division of gendered work in China today, that is men's work versus women's work, or what is deemed appropriate for men and women? Has, has your research helped formulate an opinion on that at all? I don't know that my research has had any effect on public opinion in China or anywhere whatsoever, but I do think one of the things it highlights, and this is true for other people that have done work on rural China too, is that the kind of thing that was considered appropriate for women to do changed constantly over the collective era. They were brought out into year-round field work. They were taught to plow and do other tasks that it had been considered unlucky or unthinkable for a woman to perform and so forth. So the gender division of labor kept changing. Men went off to do a lot of non-agricultural things in the 60s and 70s, and women took over a lot of basic agriculture. But the idea that gender was a good way to sort, that men should do X and women should do Y, that remained constant, even as the content of X and Y kept shifting around. One of the sort of key questions that you said that you're trying to answer is how does big history connect with individuals, or what are the conditions by which big history influences individuals? When I teach about modern Chinese history, this was more true before, but it's still somewhat true, it was hard to find good things to read about the 1950s that would bring the social and cultural history of that time alive. The history of the 50s is really a history of campaigns, land reform, marriage reform, the various stages of cooperativization, the anti-rightist campaign, the Great Leap Forward, and many, many, many other campaigns. And I was very interested in, did people know those campaigns were going on? If they knew, how did they know? What did they think the content of those campaigns were? How many of those campaigns have left enough of a trace that people can still give an account of them? And so I was interested in trying to get at the social and cultural history of the 50s through sources that were about to become unavailable, that is the lived memory of people who went through it and who were by and large marginally illiterate, didn't leave a written record, and I thought they might remember differently from the people who created the mounds of government documents you can find in archives. And one of your pleas yesterday was for this oral history to be continued. Is, is there a particular plea you would like to issue to our listeners? <laughs> Go talk to people before they die. I, I want to make it clear, I don't think, this is not because I think oral history is an uncomplicated source. What people are telling you, they're telling you in the context of what they remember and what seems important to them over the space of intervening years. It's affected by everything that's happened in those intervening years, even if they don't articulate it, and you have no way of knowing what those intervening events were or how they affected people. Nevertheless, you learn things from this particular contaminated tool of historical investigation that you can't learn from our other contaminated tools, such as archives full of documents with statistics that people often made up. 
um, government exhortations for things they wanted to have happen that were not happening on the ground. So it's just another contaminated tool. It just happens to be one that is time stamped. And so I think people should get out there and talk to people who are closer to passing from the scene and ask them about their lives. Lai Kuan Pang spoke here at the Fairbank Centre um, about the necessity for documentary making, but one of the points that she made out of that was actually the importance of subjective capturing of subjective information, such as oral histories, documentaries, um, and actually their importance to history. Is that something that you agree with? I completely agree with that. I was chairing a panel at a recent AAS meeting about oral history of the Mao years. And someone from the audience stood up and said, are you trying to get at the truth? Do you believe there is such a thing as historical truth? And what's the relationship of that to oral history interviewing? And I think part of the answer to that is that people remember things differently. They understood things differently. And that the truth has to do with the unevenness of historical events. And that's something that oral history lets you get at. What one thing do you want our audience to know about your topic? People in women's history, women's studies, have always said, if you put gender into the picture, and specifically the experiences of women, it's not just add gender and stir, it actually changes what's in the pot. I think in the case of this project, if you don't understand something about rural women's labor, including a lot of the hidden domestic labor that women continued to perform, even as they were coming out into the fields and doing many other new tasks and new political tasks, if you don't understand the role that that labor played, you can't understand how the Mao era worked. Gender is, of course, not the only variable there, but without it, we really can't make sense of what happened and of how China came into the reform era and some of the things that have happened there. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Harvard on China podcast at the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies. To listen to more interviews from leading scholars of China, check out the Harvard on China playlist at Harvard University's SoundCloud page.